We're going to continue in our worship service by reading God's word together and then hearing the preaching of God's word. We're, we are in the midst of studying the book of Philippians and we've actually come to the end. We have uh, one more section in the book of Philippians after this, but this is really the end of Paul's exhortation to the Philippians. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 to 9 with one caveat. We will also be reading verse 1 of, of Philippians. Uh, we read it. It was part of our text last week. Uh, it is a transitional verse, and so we're going to add it on. It's not in your bulletins, um, but you can you can hear it uh, because I think it it expresses what were where it, it expresses what was coming before and what is going on ahead. So with that, why don't we go ahead and look at if uh, Philippians chapter four, verses one to nine. These are the concluding exhortations of the apostle Paul. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I ask that you would use uh, my words for your glory, and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin, I want to revisit a few themes that we've looked at over the course of our study in Philippians. First, we've noted from the beginning that this is a letter of friendship. We can look back in chapter 7 and 8 where he talks about, or chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, where he talks about yearning for them. Right? He has this longing to be with them. He expresses that. Remember, he says, I'm sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to you. I'm so grateful for Epaphroditus and the gift that you've sent. I'm sending him back to you. They long to be with you, and I hope to come to you as well. It's all this friendship language. And then at the very end of our section last week, in the beginning of this section, in verse four, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, these sort of over-the-top affectionate words, therefore my brothers or brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a letter of friendship. The Apostle Paul has deep abiding friendship with the Philippian church. And the friendship is based on that mutual faith to which Paul calls them to stand firm in. 
That friendship is based in their union with one another and in their union with God in Christ Jesus. And their friendship is based on their partnership in the gospel, right? These are the things that we've looked at. Standing firm in the faith, union or, or mutual love and forbearance with one another, partnership in the gospel. And for Paul, all of this, this, this relationship, this partnership, this union, this standing together, arm in arm, side by side, is cause for great joy. Great joy. We've seen these themes throughout this little letter. And as we come to this final word in Philippians, these same themes are here again. Though he orders them a little differently. First, there's a call to unity. A very specific situation between two women. And then he says that unity that we have is actually manifest in our partnership in the gospel. These two women and and others had come alongside me in my work. There's that language of partnership and working together for the gospel. And then we also have a call to rejoice and stand firm together in faith. These, these exhortations we have at the end in verses 4 to 9. In fact, these exhortations come kind of staccato-like. Uh, and this is pretty typical of the Apostle Paul at the end of his letters. Uh, he, he sort of piles up a bunch of final words, final exhortations, that uh, he might give his final thoughts uh, about what it means to stand firm in the faith. It's kind of like when you send your child off to camp or you send your child off uh, to college or something like that, you know, you've spent their whole life instructing them in various ways. You've been working with them and talking with them as you go. But as they're walking out the door, as you wave goodbye, as you give that last hug, as a parent, what do you do? Oh, remember, be nice, right? Be kind to everybody. Do whatever work that you have to do. Be diligent. Have fun. Don't forget to have fun. And of course, you're, you're like, by the way, don't forget to brush your teeth. I mean, all the things that you just want to pile in, even though they've learned them all along. Or my mom would always say this, just come back in one piece. <laughs> that was always her line. Just come. I don't know why. why do, I don't, yeah. But Paul's list isn't random. Rather, it's like a brief summary of exhortations of everything that he's been saying to them. Yet he adds something. He adds a bit of nuance and elaboration as well. In fact, he adds one major component that I think is at the heart of their ability to stand firm, to be united as one, to be partners together in sharing the gospel and to rejoice. There's one item that he adds that he brought up at the very beginning of his, this little letter that he now comes back to. And that is the reminder of the peace of God that is with them. He opened his letter this way, grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about those words, they can kind of just be a common phrase or greeting. Grace and peace to you. Shalom. It was a very common Hebrew greeting. But I think Paul it doesn't mean it in some offhand way. And we get a picture of that here in our text. This peace of God that passes all understanding guards the people. And this is what I want us to contemplate today. 
our call is to rejoice in the Lord always, grounded in the peace of God. Even as we revisit some of the themes that we've seen throughout the text, I don't want us to lose sight of this fact. The peace of God is ours. Therefore, let's rejoice. And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, the peace of God is manifest in our peace with one another. Second, the peace of God is ours and guards our hearts. And lastly, the peace of God is experienced as we stand firm. The peace of God is experienced as we stand firm. So we're going to look at this in three points, but I don't want us to lose sight of the main call, which is this, all of this is cause for great joy and rejoicing. Okay, first, the peace of God is manifest in our peace with one another. In some ways, the letter has been building up to the address that we see here at the very beginning of chapter 4. This particular conflict within the life of the Philippian church. We see this conflict played out in very limited ways. Like, we don't get any of the details. The only interesting detail that we get is actually the names. Euodia, Syntyche. Now, we know nothing else about these women except what's written right here in this little letter. But Paul has already been exhorting the church as a whole and these women. He's already given them sort of the grounds for the exhortation. He says, I entreat you, agree in the Lord. That's all he says right here. But he's already said so much with regard to unity. If you remember, particularly in chapter 2 of Philippians, he said to the whole church, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And then he expounds on that beautiful, glorious passage of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, from which I said everything is flowing into and out of in this little letter. But now he gets to the heart of the discord in the church. There is a conflict between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. And there's a couple of things that I want to note about this conflict. The women are named... Not to embarrass or shame them, but because he loves them. What do I mean by that? Why does he name them? It seems a little bit strange. But I think he names them because he loves them. He knows them personally. Notice that this little line here in verse 2, I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Notice that it follows right on the heels of that verse 1 of chapter 4 where it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. All of those affectionate, relational uh, descriptions of his love for the Philippians. And then immediately following that, he, he, he says to these two women, I think that's an important point to note. But it ought not to be missed that, direct what, that it directly precedes 
this entreaty, we, we, this, this great affection. But that following the, the, the call to Euodia and Syntyche, not only is there affection that precedes it, but there's affection that follows it. Notice here in verse 3 and following. He asks this true companion to help these women. But then he says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Paul was close to these women. He loved these women. They were co-laborers in the gospel with him. They worked together. They, they knew one another. We don't know anything else. We could conjecture. Maybe these were women that were close to Lydia, whom he first, uh, they first met in Lydia's home back at, uh, in the book of Acts when he came to Philippi for the first time. Maybe, maybe there was some a group of women who were down who were together. We don't know any of those things, and I don't want to project anything. But what we do know is that they partnered in proclaiming the good news together and that Paul had great affection for them. In fact, think about it this way. Wouldn't it have been a cold way of dealing with them? If this public conflict that the church knew about, and he said, please deal with those women, or, you know, women, uh, just get along. Think about how impersonal and cold that would have been. But here the Apostle Paul's heart is coming out. My friends, my co-laborers, We have no idea what the nature of the conflict was, but one commentator noted that it likely wasn't a personal dispute, which would like unlikely have been in a public rebuke like this. Rather, the commentator noted that it, maybe it was a disagreement about how to go about ministry itself. And we have some indication that this might have been the case just from the way the, the little letter of Philippians was written. If you'll remember, Paul addresses various types of challenges to ministry. Way back in chapter 1, we, we, we remember that he preached the gospel, but some were preaching the gospel out of rivalry. Maybe there was some rivalry between these two women going on. We learn in chapter 2 that there was grumbling and complaining, or that the Apostle Paul was saying, do, don't, do every, don't do anything with grumbling and complaining, right? Maybe there was grumbling and complaining amongst these women. We don't know. But... It seems that it was a public dispute, possibly around ministry itself. But the fact that Paul does not address the nature of dispute tells us two things. First, that the thing itself, the dispute, probably wasn't major matter of concern. In other words, they were arguing over something that uh, didn't need to be argued over. But that never happens in our churches, does it? Never. I've never seen that, ever. But he doesn't come down on a side. He simply says, work it out, get along. And then there's something else here. He says to his true companion to help them work it out. This is the reality of the nature of our of our conflicts, isn't it? We often can't resolve them ourselves, but we need help. We don't know who this was, this true companion. Possibly it was Luke, but we don't know. 
Now, this conflict in the church in Philippi is on the one hand something we all can envision, something we've all likely experienced if we've spent any length of time in a church. Yet on the other hand, when we see this in Philippi, it can also be greatly discouraging. Why? Well, what do we know about Philippi? This was Paul's favorite church. This is the church that he praises like no other church in all of his letters. He loves them. They are his closest friends. They had shown themselves to be a loving church, a caring church, a steadfast church. And yet here amidst this idealistic church, if you will, there was conflict. That's discouraging. Because it means, what hope does any church have? If the Philippian church has conflict, what hope does our church have? This is where pastors go, by the way. Just so you know. And on some level, it is a cause for grief and sadness. But I actually think that in this text, there is great cause for joy. Yes, guess what? Conflict happens in churches because we're all broken sinners. But there are two things that I want us to see from the text that can give us hope. And because it gives us hope, it gives us joy. First, and most significantly, there is ultimate peace among all believers. There is ultimate peace among all believers. Notice here, he says that everyone, all his partners in Philippi, have their names written on the roll of heaven, written in the book of life. Now, we could talk at length about this book of life. We could ask how Paul knows whose names are written in the book of life. That seems to be the purview of God uh, himself. But all Paul is saying is that true believers are written into the Lamb's book of life and are secure there and are destined for glory and are ultimately united and at one with one another and will, at that glorious day, gather around the throne of God, singing, holy, 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 with all the saints from time past to time present together as one. He's saying, Euodia, Syntyche, I know in the moment it feels like conflict that cannot be resolved for whatever reason, but you need to know something, that you have ultimate peace and relationship with one another. You are bound together for glory with us, with these other people. No one can separate us from the love of God, so nothing can ultimately separate us from one another. Now, I have to be honest, I'm not naive enough to think that conflict can't so wound us in this life that reconciliation this side of glory may not be fully realized. I'm not that naive. But I also know that there is no conflict so great that it can finally separate us and sever us from one another. We are one in Christ. There is a peace that is wrought through Christ, that not only knits us to Christ, but it knits us and binds us to one another. That's a guarantee. And this blood-wrought peace gives us hope in this life for reconciliation and joy and hope 
that this life is not the end, that we have a guaranteed reunion and union with not only our Savior, but with one another. But there's a second thing that encourages us to have hope and joy in this little section is that I do think that there's not only a deferred glory or a deferred peace that comes or a deferred unity in glory. I would like to think that that kind of deferred reconciliation is the exception, not the rule. And the reason I think in here in the text we see it, Paul not only calls them to peace with one another, to get along, to agree in the Lord, but he brings aid to them by way of this companion. Friends, when conflict arises, may we, the body, rise up to help. And may we seek help when in times of conflict, right? We, we can't always resolve things on our own. And we need help. And God gifts the body with peacemakers. And to me, there's great hope and comfort knowing that we are not left to our own devices to resolve conflict. We have each other. And we have the broader church. So as we manifest peacemaking in our church, as we resolve conflicts, what happens? As we picture what is a guarantee in glory, as we reconcile with one another despite our differences, what happens? We start to reflect the peace of God to the world. How is it, the world says, that you all get along? Well, not because we like each other all the time, that's for sure but because of the peace of God wrought through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of our witness to a watching world. The peace of God is manifest in our peace with one another. In our vows as a church, we have five vows, and the last vow gets at this. It says, do you now resolve... Or no, it says, do you promise, to, do you submit yourself to the government discipline of the church and promise to study or strive after the peace and purity of the church? What I like to tell folks when I'm going through those vows is I say, we need to fight for peace. <laughs> it's kind of ironic, right? What do you mean fight for peace? It means as a body, we need to come together and seek that kind of peace that is ours in Christ through the grace of the Holy Spirit, striving with one another. Not without truth, speaking truth in love, but fighting for peace in the church. And as we do that, as we reflect that peace of God in us, the world sees it. It becomes an attraction. Rejoice in the Lord who made peace with us who were his enemies and reconciled us one with another. Secondly, the peace of God is ours and it guards our hearts. We kind of move in verse four to a final section. Uh, he'll say finally in verse eight, but really verse four to nine sort of form the, the last exhortations, if you will. Verse two and three kind of are the sort of culmination of everything he's been talking about uh, with regard to getting along throughout this little letter. But now he's made a turn in this letter, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Not just rejoice in the Lord, though. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, 
I say, rejoice. Now, at first blush, this call to rejoice seems a, a little bit odd. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. It's one of those favorite verses. Someone noted the other day in our community group that this little section of chapter four is full of memory verses, full of memory verses that we teach to our children. And this is one of those, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We rarely talk about it within the context that it falls in because how does it fit? How does it, how does it fit within this section? Well, first, it flows out of the hope of eternal union that he just described in the previous verse, right? He said, and whose names are written in the book of life, these fellow workers. He's just said this wonderful truth and he says, rejoice, right? So it flows out of that idea, but it is something new. It's a transition. The second thing that it does, it flows into this idea of there being peace from God that is ours, that passes all understanding, which guards our hearts, So look in verse four, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And at the end, it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think these two ideas are connected and I want to show how they're connected. Now, this idea of peace, this idea of joy and peace connected, I think was especially pertinent to the people of Philippi. Remember, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the letter, Paul is talking about his own trial, literal trial. He's on trial in Rome. And one of the things that we note is how much joy he has in the midst of that, how for him to live as Christ, to die as gain. And at the end of chapter one, he says these words to the Uh, Philippians, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This idea of suffering for the sake of the gospel can seem like not very joyful thing. It can seem like something that would actually be the opposite of joy. It would be something that causes grief and sorrow and pain And yet here the Apostle Paul, I think, when he's bringing this final sort of conclusion, this this final exhortation to the people of Philippi, Philippi, he's telling them, rejoice in the Lord always, no matter the circumstances that you find yourself in. You will find yourself in a place of suffering. You will find yourself uh, in a place where it is difficult. But I'm telling you, rejoice. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. But here's the thing. Rejoicing is possible in the face of suffering when there is an abiding peace. Say it again, because I think this is, this is the connection I'm trying to make here. Rejoicing is possible in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, when there is an abiding peace. I want to think about this idea of peace from God 
for a little bit so that we can tie it back into, into uh, this idea of joy. What does it mean to have a peace that passes all understanding? I think it's a peace that affects the way we think, the way we act, and the way we treat one another. We can start with this last thought, how we treat one another, how the peace of God affects our treatment of one another. This is what Paul was just talking about a minute ago. Paul says here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the word for reasonableness is probably not the best word there in the ESV. If you have another translation in front of you, there's probably a better translation. Gentle is often used. But it's more than just sort of gentle like a lamb. It really does have to do with relating to one another. And so one one commentator said it's gentle forbearance. Gentle forbearance with somebody. To help us think about this idea of gentle forbearance and how the peace of God helps us with this, I want us to think about what the opposite of gentle forbearance is. Impatient brutishness. (laughs) Okay, Rob, what is that? Well, when we are not at peace, when we have fear and anxiety about things, when we think that things are spinning out of control, when we think that we have to take matters into our own hands, what happens? We become short with people. We become impatient with people. We get easily offended by people. We are defensive and combative against people. We seek to secure our own good above others. But when we are secure in Christ, that is, when we know that we belong to him, that he loves us, that our hope of glory is certain, when we know that our sin and shame have been dealt with, when we know that we are forgiven by God, who has been gentle and patient with us, when we know that God, who sovereignly is working out all things, he's working everything together for his glory and for our good, when we remind ourselves that he never leaves us nor forsakes us, forsakes us, when we come into that place of peace and rest, knowing that all that God has is ours, there's a shalom, a pervasive peace that changes our outlook on the world. And it changes how we relate to one another. What does it do? I think it makes us more gentle and reasonable and patient. We're quicker to overlook offense. We're quicker to forgive. And Paul's hope here is that this attitude would be known. That people would wonder at our security and peace and see Christ in us. And this peace not only leads us to gentle forbearance, but it also makes us less anxious. Now, for some of you, Paul's words here are pretty hard to hear. He says, we're going to skip over that little line, the Lord is at hand. I want to come back to that in a minute. But in verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. I don't know about you, but that seems like a bar that no one could achieve. I certainly have all sorts of anxieties that I struggle with. And so, what do we do with that? It seems like an impossible task. Anxiety and worry often dominate our lives. 
And so this exhortation, be anxious about nothing, suddenly becomes another thing to be anxious about. Right? Now, I say this, what I'm about to say, very delicately, realizing that for some, anxiety is a very real and difficult thing to overcome. Nevertheless, I think it's important scripturally to note that much of the root of our anxiety and worry is because we fail to see God as both sovereign and God as loving. Jesus addresses this in the Gospels, right? In the Gospels, he says, don't be anxious, don't worry. Worry doesn't add a minute to your life. It doesn't add anything. the, The day has enough worry for itself. Don't worry about the things of tomorrow. Don't you see that God, the God who cares for the, 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 the little flower or the God that cares for the birds of the air, do, do, don't you see that this God loves you and cares for you and upholds you, that you are his child? And so the Apostle Paul, I don't think, is saying, just suck it up, don't be anxious, don't worry. But what he says is really important. He recognizes that anxiety and worry are real. And what does he say? He says, take them to the Lord. Bring them to the Lord. He says this, Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Little little notation in there. With thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving do when we're praying? What does it do? It reminds us of God's good work. As we thank God, as we're in prayer and we say, Lord, I am anxious and I'm worried about what's going to happen tomorrow and I can't control it. But Lord, I know that you're sovereign for I've seen your hand care for me. I'm so thankful for the way you've done X, Y, and Z. All of a sudden your heart changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden your disposition changes. That, that feeling of worry starts to slip away. It doesn't maybe disappear fully, but you start to say, I can take my worries and anxieties to the Lord. And we do that because God has granted to us his peace. Notice here before verse six, in between verse five and six, there's, it's not a verse, it's part of verse five, but it says, the Lord is at hand. This is one of those glorious little notations that he's saying, do all these things. He's giving all these exhortations. But in the middle of this exhortation, he says, the Lord is here. He is at hand. Not only is he present in your life, not only is his spirit here with you in your midst, that you can find comfort and hope knowing that the sovereign God of heaven and earth is here with you. But the Lord is coming again. That this worry is for a time, it's passing away, that these trials that you face, whatever suffering that you're going through, isn't the end of the story. But the Lord is at hand, he's coming again, and he's going to bring you home. You are enjoyers of the peace of the king. He is yours. And this is a peace that surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? I think we intuit what it means. It's the kind of peace that pervades our hearts 
that even despite the circumstances that surround us and all the trials that we face, we are at rest knowing that God is at work, even though we have no clue what he's doing. It gives us peace. And that peace gives us great joy. It enables us to say in the face of the worst suffering that we could imagine, rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in the Lord. Remember how Paul was in Philippi once before? And he was imprisoned. And do you remember what happened? He's there in prison singing. He's rejoicing. Why? Because he knows that these things are not outside of his father's hands. That this is all part of his plan. And he rejoices in the salvation, though they take his life, as, as Luther said in his great hymn, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the joy and the hope that we have in the face of whatever comes. The peace of God, therefore, is a guard of our hearts. It guards us. It protects us. You don't think of peace as something that is protective, but it is. It's the king establishing that great wall around his kingdom that says, Nothing can crush you. Yes, you might be hurt in this temporal world, but I have you in my hands. You are secure. You're under the shadow of my wings. I am a guard and protection around you. You can rest secure in God's kingdom. The peace of God is ours, and it guards our hearts. Finally, and in conclusion, the peace of God is experienced as we stand firm. The Apostle Paul now goes from a little bit of staccato exhortation to a lot. Uh, this was typical uh, uh, of Paul's writing here where it says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Two things I want to note at the outset. He says two things. First, he says, have these things in your mind. In other words, dwell on these things, right? It's, I think, easy for us to say, oh, I wish, I wish I was better. I wish I would be more obedient to God and his word. I wish I could follow him more. But the truth of the matter is we spend a lot of time thinking about why we're not doing the things we ought to than we are spending time thinking about the things we ought to about turning to his word and drinking in the riches of the wonders of what he's told us. We sit often in our minds thinking about how terrible we are or thinking about all the desires of the flesh, but we fail to go and consider the things that are noble, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that are commendable. So the first thing I want to say is it's just having a mind that is fixed on things that are good. Now, came up in our community group. Does that mean that that's all you ever think about? You just sit there in perpetual reading of God's word and you never have another thought in your mind. I don't think so. I think, I think God's word calls us to think about all the things in this world. Sometimes that means dwelling on things that are hard, sin and the fall and all the, the trials of this world. We can't really know our enemy unless we study it to an extent. But I think what Paul is saying here is 
Don't fill your minds with all the dark parts without turning your heart and mind firstly to the King, to the Christ, to the one who shows us the way. For as often as we consider all the, all the things of this world, remember, Jesus or Paul said, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? Fixing our eyes there. So the writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on that author and perfecter of our faith. So that's the first thing, is to have a mindset that dwells on the things of God. And I think there's a challenge there because I think the world, we are so inundated with things and information uh, that we are overwhelmed by it, right? I'm overwhelmed by it. I go online, I read one thing, I read another thing, they don't agree. I go and read another thing, it doesn't agree with those things. And I'm seeking to find truth and I keep reading and I can find whatever idea and thought that ever existed online. And how much time do we spend doing that rather than going to the source of truth, of putting our minds and our hearts on the things that are good, honorable, just, pure, lovely. In other words, how often are we thinking on Christ? But there's a second aspect of this, that it's not just about keeping our minds fixed on things, but it says practice these things. It's one thing to be an expert in the law of God, right? This was the Pharisees' tradition. They were experts in the law of God, and they thought they were experts in the practice as well. But I think sometimes we can be so filled with knowledge that we think we've arrived in our obedience to the Lord. But here the Apostle Paul is saying, no, think on the things and then practice them. What does it look like to stand firm in the faith? What does it look like to to stand ready to fight side by side as co-laborers? It means practicing the things that God has put forward. And what are those things? Well, the Apostle Paul has already said them throughout, right? He's called them to love one another, to consider others as more significant than themselves, to not grumble and complain, to, to, to boldly rejoice in the face of suffering and stand firm in the faith. All these things, Paul is saying, practice them. Put them into practice. And then it says at the very end that the God of peace will be with you. Now you could read that, well, if I do these things, then the God of peace will be with me. But if I don't do these things, then the God of peace will not be with me. But that's to erase everything we've already said, right? I want to go back to verse 5. The Lord is at hand. The God of peace and the peace of God is given to you. He is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember, everything flows out of Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2 in Philippians said this, Who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. You see, when we talk about 
peace of God, that, that sense of God's presence and care, that sense of God's love, what we're ultimately talking about is the peace that was wrought by Christ on the cross. That peace that draws us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. That peace that says, I am no longer your enemy, but I am your friend. I am with you. I am drawing near to you. So now walk. Stand firm in the faith. Practice these things as my child. The peace of God is experienced as we stand firm in the faith, as we reflect Christ, as we reflect the things of God, all of a sudden, the peace of God, not only is it, is it wrought by Christ, but we experience that peace because we are pleasing our Heavenly Father. And we're in right relationship with one another. And we're enjoying, finding joy in the Lord. The peace of God is ours. Rejoice. Let's pray.